0: Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. I have the distinct privilege to read from God's Word. So um, I'm going to be in Revelation 2, verse 18, going through 29. If you're in the Pew Bible, that's uh, page number 992. Read with me. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, the one that will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord.
1: And I don't know about you, but those songs are hitting different for me this morning. A few weeks ago, we talked about some of the distinctives of the early church, some of the similarities. Their gathering was on a Sunday. In fact, they, the early church started on a Sunday because of that was when Christ was resurrected. And it's fair to assume that when they would gather every Sunday it was primarily to remember that, to remember the resurrection. And as we were singing those songs, how can we how can Christ be our firm foundation? How can things be good even when they're hard? It's because of the resurrection, because death doesn't have the final word, because our suffering, what we're enduring, what we're experiencing is not the end. You know, this week's been tough. We had a a family member in our church um, lose his mother. We had others get hospitalized to a dangerous extent. But those that have placed their faith in Jesus, they don't have to be afraid of death. We acknowledge the pain, but we know that death doesn't have the final word. We've been in this series in the book of Revelation, the last book of our Bible, and Jesus has been addressing his church. And because the resurrection is so important, he wants to make sure that they understand and they hold true to what he has already taught, what he's demonstrated. He wants them to, to stay on the path to eternal life. And so anything that would cause them to deviate is alarming to him and he wants to address it. And so he's been doing that. He's been commending the churches on the things that are doing well and he's been warning them on the areas that they might get off track. And several of the churches we've already seen have kind of dealt with similar things. They're all in the same region of the world in the Roman Empire dealing with the similar, similar cultural things, but every city has its nuances just like in the Puget Sound, Right? Renton is different than Kent, is different than Bellevue, which is different than Seattle. So we're seeing that within these different cities. But there's these common kind of experiences, persecution. Christians are viewed as outsiders. They're viewed, I mentioned, as atheists because they don't believe in all the gods. And so they're suffering hardship. And so Jesus is commending them for holding fast to the truth. They're having to deal with idolatry. And by idolatry, we mean like actual idol worship. These pagan celebrations that involve immorality of all sorts, of food sacrificed to idols. And so all of the churches are dealing with these particular things, but then they have their specific challenges as well. So, in the letter that Kyle just read, we're going to look this morning at a church in a city called Thyatira. Of all the churches that are written to, this is in one of the smaller cities. Um, Lots of the same cultural challenges exist as in the other churches. But this particular church is dealing with an issue that is within, that is part of their church body. And this issue seems to be capturing the hearts and the minds of those Christians in that church and distorting the truth, leading them away from what Jesus has taught and demonstrated. So before we look at the specifics, I want to point out that this Issue that Thyatira is dealing with is really common throughout church history. This idea of false teaching, of of people coming in and using kind of the language of faith to just change the trajectory of the Christian message and of the way that the church is to act. It's so common that, in fact, uh, the primary warning in many of the early letters to the church in our Bible have to do with this beware. Beware of. False teaching, beware of wolves in sheep clothing. Beware of a gospel that has no gospel power at all. So it's it was common right from the beginning of the church, and it's common in our culture too. If I say the name Joseph Smith, do you know who that is? He was a supposed prophet that used the language of faith to change the message of Christ. Charles Taze Russell. Does anybody know that one? Maybe a little less known. Jehovah's Witness. If you've been around King County, maybe you've seen Jehovah's Witnesses standing out in front of the libraries with their literature. A self-proclaimed prophet that said he knew when Jesus would come back. He was wrong the first time, and the second time, and the third time. And eventually, said, "Well, he came back. We just missed it." <laughs> Mary Baker Eddy. Does anybody know that name? Church of Christian Science. These people claim to have new knowledge and prophetic insight. They use the language of the Christian faith, and they distort it. It's like if I were to tell you, walk straight out that door, but I'm going to aim you this direction first. It still looks like I'm kind of aiming towards direction, but eventually your trajectory takes you so far away from the destination, and that's what false teaching does. You think you're headed in the right direction, and you find out you're at a dead end. And so Jesus is pointing out, just like Joseph Smith or Mary Baker Eddy, he's pointing out that there is a similar person in this church in Thyatira that is doing these same things. The language of faith, but distorting what it means to follow Jesus. So before we get into the specifics, one more background piece that is really interesting for this particular church is that the message of Jesus may have first come to the city of Thyatira, through a woman named Lydia. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, we hear about Lydia and the city. It says, one of those listening to the gospel was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. I think that should be 12 Acts, chapter 12, not chapter 2. So we see this, this woman named Lydia. Eventually, she, she hosts the church in Thyatira. So this is the very beginning of the church. God uses this, this amazing woman of influence. And so the church, since then, until when this letter was written, has grown. It's grown in its influence. It's probably about a generation later. But just as the gospel came to the city, thanks to Lydia, there was now another influential woman who was leading the people in this church in a wrong destination. So if you have your Bibles, look again at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, as, the, as Kyle just read, verses starting in verse 18. So Jesus acknowledges, uh, he identifies himself as the one that's writing these words. And first he acknowledges the growth of this particular church. He says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. That is a beautiful affirmation. This church has grown. But there's a problem. And the problem, again, is a person. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. And thus they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, as we've been reading through Revelation, Jesus uses imagery to convey spiritual truth. That's true for the entire book of Revelation. This name, Jezebel, could be a real person, could be a woman named Jezebel. Or it could be symbolic of another Jezebel. If you know your scripture, there was a a woman named Jezebel uh, married to Ahab's wife. 1 Kings chapter 16 talks about how this woman, Jezebel, had incited people against the people of God, led them astray. And so this Jezebel, like that one, is doing something similar. She's been given time to change. But she hasn't. And so sudden and immediate judgment is coming. Jesus calls her sinful ways adultery. Again, that could be literal. It seems like there's literal sexual immorality happening. But this type of adultery could also be figurative in like spiritual adultery. Moving away from the teachings of Jesus. So he calls her ways sinful and adulterous. And he promises that all who would follow in her ways would suffer that the judgment would be so dramatic that the churches, plural, would know that Jesus as God is the one who searches hearts and minds. So the problem in Thyatira is within, not without. Again, they're, they're certainly dealing with some of the same cultural pressures, but this poison is there, and this poison is a person, and what that person is bringing into the church. But before we continue into some of the 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 words that Jesus used here, it's really important to know that as much as Jesus has every right to deal with this sin swiftly, it is his church, his people, he has given her every opportunity to repent. He's been very gracious. What does he say in verse 23? I've given her time to repent, but she is unwilling. I'll tell you, as I was studying this passage this week, I thought, oh Lord, is there areas in my life that I'm unwilling to repent of? I'm about to preach this message about your judgment, about how much you are concerned about sin. Is there a search my heart, God? Show me if there's any unrepentance in my heart. Last thing I can do is preach a message and have that same issue in my heart. So Jesus gives her an opportunity. This is not like, oh, you messed up once. There's been time. And this is, this is the heart of Christ for us as well. This is how he deals with us. One of, my, one of the key verses that really highlights this is in 2 Peter chapter 3. says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is his heart for us, who wants us. He is gracious and slow, but there will be a day. There will be an account. This doesn't excuse sinful behavior. And that's the issue Jesus is pointing out. He's saying to the church, you have been tolerating this far too long. And so now I'm going to deal with it. What about us? If something similar were happening at Sunset Community Church, how would we deal with it? How should we deal with sin in the church? First of all, as it relates to my sin and your sin, God is not surprised by any of it. We think we can hide it, and we try to hide it. In fact, the very first sin that entered the world, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid. <laughs> and we see God walking in the garden and he goes, "He goes, where are you? But it's kind of like, you know, they, when little kids think they can hide and they just cover their eyes like this. You can't see me. That's kind of what Adam and Eve were doing. And Jesus was, God was kind of playing along in some ways. I know where you are, but something is broken. Something has happened. Something has changed between us, and it's sin. We think we can hide, but we can't. Jesus knows our hearts. It's interesting. Of all the things Jesus could have instructed his people toward, of all the teachings that could have been recorded in Scripture, most of what Jesus did was just simply reaffirm what had already been taught for hundreds and hundreds of years, issues of marriage and sex and of being honest, of the value of life, of being generous. This holiness that is a mark of relationship with God was continually reaffirmed in Jesus. So there's no allowance in this following of Jesus for any type of sinful behavior. No glossing it over, no saying, well, times have changed or it's not that bad. The old ways of our life before Jesus have to die. They have to die. But, in the words of uh, Miracle Max in the Princess Bride, there's a big difference between mostly dead. And all the way dead. <laughs> those of you who watch this movie, you know what I'm talking about. For those that don't, I don't apologize at all. Watch the movie. <laughs> so, what do we do? What do we do when there is clear, unrepentant sin in our lives? What do we do when there is clear and unrepentant sin being allowed within the family of God? How are we to respond? How should we deal with unrepentant sin? Well, the church of Thyatira, they're like, "Um, we'll just ignore it. We'll just let it be. If Jesus were to write this letter to the church in America, it would probably say, you do you. It's all right. Who am I to judge? You do you. You're showing up to church, aren't you? That's enough. Jesus says, deal with it. Don't let it fester. Again, what is he holding against the church? You've tolerated this long enough. What are some of the reasons we tolerate wrong teaching or wrong behavior in the church? I mean, we don't in other places, right? In our families, if if a kid's misbehaving, we're like, you do you. I'll just ignore it. I'm sure they'll grow out of it eventually. No, we don't do that. If you have a, a terrible coworker, a terrible boss, you deal with it. So why in the church do we often just say, "Ah, I'll just ignore it. We'll just tolerate it. We'll just deal with it." A, f- a few reasons come to mind. Maybe you have some as well. Sometimes this wrong teaching, the reason we deal with the tolerate it, the reason we let it go, is because it actually supports our lustful desires. Deep in us, we're like, well, I kind of want that too. Greed, sex, power, yeah, I'll let those those hang here. Because, to be honest, they're kind of appealing. And if other people are doing it, then maybe I can do it too and still be a Christian. Our own lustful desires sometimes are the reason we will not address it. Sometimes we let these things go because... Well, wrong teaching that kind of moves us away from the centrality of Christ and the obedience of him and his moral requirements for us. Man, it's not very acceptable in the culture. So if we can just kind of soften that a little bit, if we can let a little bit of that that culture in and just say, okay, Jesus and this is okay, all right, it makes it a little easier. We're going to stick out as much. Sometimes we tolerate it just because we want to avoid conflict at all costs. And I get that. Nobody likes conflict. Even people that wade into conflict don't like conflict. But Jesus makes it really clear that the reality is the most loving thing we can do as a church body is not to ignore sin or to justify it, but to deal with it. In fact, this is so important that of, of all the things that Jesus explicitly taught to his followers, he actually takes a little section and he goes, listen, when sin, not if, when sin is present within the church family, here is what you do. Are you familiar with this passage? Matthew chapter 18. This is Jesus speaking. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take two or three others along. So that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even then to the church, treat them as you would a pagan, a tax collector, or a 49er fan. He come out. Sorry, I had to get one Super Bowl joke in today, so. <laughs> so here's the thing. This is, Jesus knew we were going to have issues, didn't he? He knew we were going to have issues. He knew that, that this remaining sin, like it's dead, but it's not all the way dead. That it was, we're gonna bring it with us within the church. That's why there is no perfect church. So when these things happen, deal with them. I've been thinking about this over the years. I don't think I've ever had as much conflict anywhere in any sphere of my life as I have had in the church. And it's a good thing. It's how I grow, it's how we grow. It's so much easier in our culture when things are uncomfortable just to walk away. To cancel, we can say that. Or just to to slide out. Nah, this is too difficult. I'm out of here. We do it in our our marriages. We do it in our friendships. And of course, if that's the prevailing sentiment in the culture, it happens in the church. This church isn't what I wanted it to be, so I'm out. Jesus says, no, deal with it. Walk toward it address it. Win your brother and your sister over. So Jezebel, whoever she is, has been given has been given warning. She's been given time, and instead of repenting, she's now influencing others. And so Jesus would say, it's time for her to go. It's time for her to go. False teaching is poison. And false teaching isn't poison just for the moment that we're in, but it's It's poison for eternity. This kind of thing, when it is allowed to be in the church, leads people away from eternity with Jesus. So it's serious. The preacher John Wesley said, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. Man, we see that, don't we? (laughs) It's amazing. I was... I'm a sports guy. I was looking at a basketball, some basketball scores yesterday on ESPN.com. ESPN just got into gambling. And so now under each, all of the scores, before the game begins, they have the over-under, the, the money spread. What are they saying? Come on, throw a little money on this game. You can do it now. What one, one generation ago couldn't have imagined that gambling would be mainstream because of the corruption and the destruction that gambling brings to families and societies. And now, what one generation tolerated, the next generation's embracing. We could go down the list in our culture, couldn't we? And if we think that the church is immune to this, we're naive. We're naive. And so Jesus, this is a serious thing. There will be lies and moral behavior in the church, but they cannot be tolerated. There will be justice for those that tolerate them. But also know, also know that God has as passionate a desire for sinners to turn to him. Isaiah chapter 30 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Ezekiel says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. What is repentance? It is turning away. It's a change of mind. This is the heart of God for Jezebel, and it's his heart for you too. So as we reflect on this letter today, we see clearly that God is, is not an absentee father. Jesus sees us, his church. He loves us, his church. And he is protective of us, his church. This letter to Thyatira wasn't just for them, it's for us too. Again, verse 23, he's gonna do these things, he's gonna, he's gonna show these things for what they are, and all the churches will know that I Am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each according to their deeds. Jesus goes on at the end of this letter to commend those who can see the difference between Jezebel's teaching and what is true. Can you see the difference? He says to those that are that can see that difference, he says, Hold on to what you have until I come. He's I'm not going to add anything extra. Just hold on to what you have until I come. And that's exactly what we need to do today. We need to get back to the gospel of Jesus, to the ways of Jesus. We need to hold on to those things. And whenever a new interpretation of Scripture magically agrees with the culture, I know for 2,000 years the church believed this, but guess what? (laughs) Here's a new way. Or whenever a Christian leader says, whatever you've believed before is all wrong. Let me show you, this is actually the way. Whenever those things happen, we need to be like those in Thyatira who were not deceived by Jezebel. We need to hold on to what we have. And as the imagery of this letter conveys, that is enough. That is enough to ensure that one day we will experience the fullness of, and the wholeness of life with God. And that wholeness and that fullness will either happen through death, which for us is just a graduation ceremony, (laughs) or if God wills it, it'll happen through Christ's return, which we'll be able to witness. Either way, the promise is sure. God's word is true. And Jesus is enough. Amen. Amen. Could we sing firm foundation as an end? Yeah, if the worship team could come up. Let me just pray for us, and then let's, let's end our time just in those words. Christ is my firm foundation. Father, we, we reaffirm that truth today. You are our firm foundation. That means you don't change. You don't change your mind about us. You love us. You are slow in your mercy to us so that we might respond to it. Thank you that you haven't changed. And Lord, you are sure in your justice. You will deal with evil and those who lead others astray. And we are sure of that as well. And it is scary. It is scary for those who are unwilling to repent, who have set their selves against you, saying, I'll, I'm going to do me. I've got my way. I got this." Or for those who willfully lead others into sin, saying, "It's OK. Your justice is scary. But it is just. You have mercy and you deal with sin. Father, may we be a people that hold on to those truths, the tension of those in our own lives, that we would be quick to repent and quick to extend mercy. For those that don't know you, maybe even in this room, they would wait no longer. (laughs) They would not find themselves like Jezebel too late they respond today to your mercy and your grace. Thank you for it.
0: You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.